Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Tiger Gao. I'm very honored to introduce my guest today. He is Richard V. Spencer, who served as the 76th United States Secretary of the Navy from 2017 to 2019. He also briefly served as Acting Secretary of Defense and Acting Deputy Secretary of Defense in 2019. Secretary Spencer resigned on November 24th, 2019 as the Navy Secretary over President Trump's handling of the Eddie Gallagher case because as he stated in the resignation letter that he can no longer in good conscience obey an order that he believes violates the sacred oath he took in the presence of his family, his flag, and his faith to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. We will discuss this case in today's interview as well as the state of the Navy competition with other military powers, investment in human capital and frontier military tech, the philosophy of war and many other uh, interesting topics we'll hopefully get through. So uh, Secretary Spencer, Richard, thank you so much uh, for being here today. It's, it's an honor. Here, thank you for putting this together. <laughs> uh, perhaps we should start the interview by, by asking about your long and successful career. Uh, you, you served in the US Marine Corps from 1976 to 81 as a marine aviator. You also worked many years on Wall Street, uh, eventually becoming the vice chairman and CFO of Intercontinental Exchange, which is a Fortune 500 company. Um, wh where did your interaction with military start? How did you wind up being the Navy secretary? Well, uh, Tiger, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting and long path, but uh, my interaction with the military started when I uh, raised my hand after graduation in 1976 and took my commission in the United States Marine Corps. <clears throat> um, it was probably the best thing that happened to me at that point in my life. Um, as uh, the person who told me I should think about giving back to my country, he was a Marine also, uh, ran a little establishment that we used to eat at in college, said, uh, you need some adult supervision, Spencer, and then you'll get on the right track. And he was right. The Marine Corps really did provide me a foundation on the way I think and act. Uh, and then, uh, as you said, went uh, on to join uh, the movements in Wall Street uh, from 80, uh, 81 onward. Uh, worked at some great firms, uh, old A.G. Becker, which was a Chicago firm with New York offices way back when. Uh, DLJ, uh, Merrill Lynch, uh, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, just superb organizations that all had, um, interestingly enough, in the case of DLJ and Goldman Sachs, had a lot of Marine Corps influence in the management uh, and the way they conducted business, which made it very uh, easy to adapt. Um, then decided I was going to practice what I preached when I spoke to all my clients about what they should do to optimize their organizations. And uh, joined a little company called Crossroads, which uh, was a private equity fund of funds. Uh, and we grew that from 600 million to about 2.1 billion under management. Uh, and then uh, joined uh, Intercontinental Exchange, uh, which was a uh, Goldman Sachs investment that happened to be in my backyard because I was living in Atlanta. And uh, Jeff Sprecher and Chuck Weiss had amazing insight and operational expertise. And I came and added some financial expertise. and. Uh, the model worked quite well. I think the history speaks for itself. But during that period, the latter part of that period, um, I uh, was asked to join an organization called the Defense Business Board, um, which is a collection of um, uh, US uh, CEOs and entrepreneurs uh, that have done something in their life extraordinary and can provide insight uh, and value to the Secretary of Defense on various problems that he'd like this group to look into. Um, and it was a fascinating exposure to the Pentagon. 
Uh, I was there for, I think, about 10 years, nine or 10 years on that board. And you begin to understand how they speak. You begin to understand the taxonomy of the organization. We jokingly said, you find out that yes doesn't always mean yes. Um, and uh, you could understand their problems better. Um, ironically, um, I was helping feed some names in uh, when the uh, uh, President Trump won the election to the uh, transition team in the Pentagon. And uh, <clears throat> uh, Jim Madison, I knew each other and uh, he, um, uh, Philip Bilden, if you remember, was the candidate uh, for the Secretary of the Navy. Philip had a very successful career, and uh, he had a lot of uh, financial uh, uh, investments that were very difficult to unwind. So uh, I was called, and uh, the Secretary said, you know, uh, we need more names. And I said, fine, that sounds excellent. And the next thing was, would like your name. And uh, <laughs> check with my commander in chief yeah. to see if she'd like to move to Washington to uh, take a tour. Yeah. Of, uh, <laughs> and that's how we ended up there. That's amazing. That's, a, that's an amazing story. But uh, perhaps we should give our listeners an overview of the Navy and, and so the state of the Navy, the future of the Navy, because uh, before I prepared for the interview, I had always followed military news, but I don't know a lot of the fine-grained details. And you, you appeared at the Brookings Institution back in October 2019, you cited the Commandant's Planning Guide, the, C the CPG, and you were saying it was bordering on revolutionary because the CPG usually serves as a roadmap describing where the Marine Corps is going and why and, and the different development priorities and, and so on. And, and I read the 38th uh, Commandant's uh, Planning Guide following your encouragement for your audience back then to, to, to go read it. And perhaps maybe we can start the interview by going over some of the ideas there and also elaborated by you during the Brookings address. So, so maybe to give us an overview, what are the main components of the U.S. Navy? Uh, what are the main priorities? Uh, what do they do? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's a great question, Tiger, because a lot of people, um, uh, I, I, it's, it's proven in some data that we did some polling. A lot of Americans don't really understand what the Navy does. Um, and if you look at uh, what's going on in the world today, um, you know, what the Navy does as far as uh, supporting the national security initiative. Um, I think you summed it up when we talked earlier, you know, 80% of global trade by volume and 70% by value moves by sea. And what a lot of people also don't understand is about 95% of the global economy's data between continents travels in undersea cables. The United States Navy is responsible for keeping those channels of commerce open on the free and sea oceans and underneath the ocean. And that's on a daily basis. That, 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 that is not uh, on call uh, uh, to go um, address a skirmish. This is when we wake up every morning and when, we, uh, when, when one shift goes to bed and hands it over to another, uh, the watch goes on 24 hours a day and that's your United States Navy. It also, the Navy has a very interesting historical perspective. If you look at the, you know, when it was founded and the Marine Corps also in Tun Tavern in Philadelphia, when it was brought together, um, uh, it, it was to be a projection of the United States uh, from our shores, which was a very revolutionary thought back then. Um, if you, you uh, give it the thought like this, uh, what happens when friends, allies, and in some cases our competitors you know, see a big gray ship with an American flag sitting in their harbor or off their shores, 
um, on a regular basis, uh, you know that we can reach out and and touch you, uh, you know, positively or guidance-wise, uh, hopefully at, at any moment in time. That is the fundamental basis of the United States Navy, always deployed. Uh, we are the deployed force. And the Marine Corps, the way the Marine Corps was founded was the Navy needed people in the riggings, and that was the, that was the uh, strategy there. So if in fact they went to close combat, which they did back in the founding days, uh, there were sharpshooters in the rigging. And the reason I use that phrase is the Commandant's planning guidance is specifically, uh, and we use this as an informal phrase, uh, to bring the Marines back into the rigging of the Navy. Um, we have uh, an amazing force between both the Navy and Marine Corps. And if you put the Marines back into their original foundation, which is an amphibious force in the riggings of the Navy, the Navy should view this and they do as one more weapon systems for the United States Navy. And the Commandant, I, I cannot uh, applaud uh, General Berger's uh, efforts in this regard. This is a meaningful move. I mean, he's, he's dispatched himself of tanks, because his comment is, how do you drag tanks around an island? And this is predicated, by the way, that China is you know, our biggest competitor in this regard, and that the, the Indo-Pacific theater is one of our major theaters. Uh, we have to always be as flexible as possible, and that is one reason that we have the United States Marine Corps. The, the, I don't want to take anything away from our brethren in the, in, in the, in the Army, but the Army is not an expeditionary force per se. I mean, they're much more institutional. Marine Corps, the whole concept of, of you know, diversified uh, 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 points of contact and, and diversified power units is that they can have self-operating units, small units, uh, to be able to scale, to be able to maneuver in the, in the theater uh, with minimal oversight, i.e. they are given the mission and then turn the switch and, and minimal communications to uh, accomplish the mission. But I go back to, you know, that is your fundamental Navy Marine Corps team now. We call it the Integrated Naval Force, as you know, INF. Uh, but um, it, it, it's not any good new birth is not without pain. And uh, a lot of people are uh, looking at it going, wow, you know, the Marine Corps, you did such a, you know, a, you're, you're a land force. Well, we, we, we did end up focusing too much on being a land force. And now we have to shift. And that's a natural progression and evolution of a strategy because you were talking about how the Marine Corps should be trained and equipped as a naval expeditionary force in readiness. And in other words, it should be the force of choice by the president, the secretary, the, the combatant commander as a certain force for an uncertain world. But, but the Commandant's Planning Guide also talked about how during the World War II as a service, uh, clearly understood that Marines operated in support of the Navy Sea Control mission, but in subsequent years, the luxury of presumptive Marine time superiority deluded us into thinking the Navy existed to support the Marine operations ashore. And the Commandant was writing that this was a historical anomaly and we need to refocus on how we will fulfill the mandate to support the fleet. So how should we think about the relationship between the Marine Corps and the Naval fleet going forward uh, or, or before? You know, I think the word is, is, is integrated and that is the strongest word. Um, you know, you're dealing with organizations that are primarily uh, uh, human beings, and in that case, you, you do have to manage everyone's thought process and messaging, and I truly believe the message is that we are a naval team. Uh, the Marine Corps and the Navy work side by side in lockstep, um, and that, I think, is the true message the Commandant's trying to get across. 
this concept of, uh, and I think to put it into framework, he said, yeah, here's where we started, which was in support of the Navy. We kind of wandered away from that. Now we're back in working together as a team with the Navy. Um, and that is the most important part because this is a true example. I firmly believe that if the commandant gets to engage his full planning guidance 100%, this is where one plus one equals three. You also talked about this during your Brookings address and you were talking about your vision about the integrated naval force structure. You said it's not Navy, it's not Marine Corps. It's the goal of my direction in complete concert with the CNL and the commandant of the Marine Corps to have one single unified service. So basically that is how things should ideally unfold in, in the coming years. Strategic, yes, strategically and tactically. At the end of the day, there are some things that always, uh, you know, it's, it's where the money flows that will always provide the friction. But the fact of the matter is the United States Marine Corps is a department of the Navy. So we can get all the, the combatant commanders and the field commanders working together and teaming with the Navy. We're always gonna have a little friction because you know every single aviation asset is an example in the Marine Corps is owned by the Navy, funded by the Navy. Um, so there's always, a, there's always gonna be torque there, but you know what? I actually think that's a healthy torque to have. Could we also talk a little bit about the idea of decentralization, deep distribution, because that's also an idea I mentioned in, in the Commandant's planning guide, and you talked about this, uh, because in addition to the integrated naval force, there seems to also have this vision for more decentralized command and control at the tactical level for the, for the Navy. Navy. And, and then there was this term called composite warfare. So would you mind helping us um, unpack the, the, the relationship between you know, this idea of centralization and decentralization? Yeah, well, if you, it, it, yeah, distributed power. Uh, it's a fascinating, and this is one of those brilliant flashes of the obvious, um, if you start really peeling back the Commandant's planning guidance. The fundamental basis of the United States Navy is, is fundamentally a ship, uh, whether it be undersea and, or on the sea. Um, and in some cases, I'll say this, this concept also uh, uh, pertains to in the air with, with the Naval Air Wings and the Marine Corps Air Wings. Um, by nature, they're individual units out on the ocean with their own mission. Um, now we have the Marine Corps going back to its uh, uh, small smaller unit, tactical deployment, maneuver warfare. They fit side by side because the Commandant's saying, I want smaller units that are given the mission and the ability to be self-commanded in attaining that mission. It's very similar to a ship or a, combi a combined unit unto itself. And this is really critical because um, what you know nets this whole thing together and keeps it, keeps it going forward is communications. And that's one of the things that we are really focusing on and have been focusing on are communications in a contested environment because uh, we're gonna have a real reliance on your, your senior command, both senior enlisted and officers in making sure the mission is commanded and we're gonna to have to do it in areas where communications might be contested. So this whole concept of operating on your own unit has to be drilled in and taught from the beginning of, of, of a person's experience inside the service. And for those that are in the service now to adapt to that. I, I guess just to taking a step back right now, uh, where do you think that the Navy is at right now in terms of its preparedness, its, its readiness, its size, its capacity, if we think about it in, in terms of uh, different levels, whether it's, it's ready to go to have a war tonight, or whether uh, they're able to have a sustained war and whether there is a capacity overmatch, where do you assess the, the Navy to be at, at the moment? Yeah, the Navy is, uh, 
is part of the, the whole, uh, I would say, defense apparatus of this country, which I still firmly believe is probably the best uh, service and, and the ability to deliver power and deliver the message uh, that needs to be delivered on the face of the earth. And let's remember, uh, I know we're going to probably get into this later, but let's remember why we have a Department of Defense. And Jim Mattis, I think, used to sum this up every chance he had. The reason we have a Department of Defense is to give the State Department one more day, one more day to do their job. And that's the way to really frame what the Department of Defense is. We're not out there looking for a fight. We're out there to provide leverage to the State Department. And I take it one step further, as did a lot of people that I worked with, which nowadays we have to get a whole of government solution. This is not how can the, the Navy and Marine Corps go secure islands. This is about how do we get Treasury involved? How do we get State Department involved? How do we get Health and Human Services involved? Let's remember, everyone talks about power projection, you know, uh, hypersonic missiles, laser guided uh, or, 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 or um, uh, energy uh, distributed uh, weapons. Hey, you know what? Landing a C-130 with vaccines with the United States flag on its tail into a country is also power projection. This is the whole of government we have to think about. Um, your question, you know, about, uh, um, how, you know, what's, what's the state of the Navy? Uh, look, we are operating and, and completing our mission day in and day out as required uh, or requested by the combatant commanders and required by the Secretary of Defense. Um, are, we opting, are we operating at an optimal basis? And I define optimal as is everything queued up so we can, you know, we, we can process our mission. We're doing it, but we're not doing it in the most optimal manner. And what I mean by that is that we have to get surface warfare maintenance under control. We have to get our private shipyards operating at an optimum. We have to understand our supply chain. These are the unsexy things that we've kind of lost the bubble on, to be very frank with you. Um, as an example, um, one of the things that we did when I arrived, I think uh, the F-18 mission capable uh, uh, percentage rate in the fleet was somewhere around 48% and uh, brought all the heads of Naval Air in. And I said, look, if I'm the CEO of this organization and this was an airline, not only would I be fired, but I'd probably be sued for malfeasance. That's just an abysmal number. Now, by definition, we probably shouldn't be at 100% because we have replacements and things like that, which commercial algorithms don't have contained in their formulas. But that being said, we brought in uh, one specific person, and the reason we went after him is because he'd worked at both uh, Northwest Airlines and Southwest Airlines uh, maintenance department and really put them on, on top performance. Uh, we, we brought in a fellow by the name of Brian Hirschman, who was working for Boston Consulting Group. And what's amazing is that I want to give a shout out to corporate America. We called up, uh, uh, we called up Delta. We called up Caterpillar. We called up John Deere. We called up everyone who had um, uh, uh, maintenance issues and said, how are you thinking? How do you do this? And the outpouring of help from corporate America was absolutely stunning. I mean, they wanted to on-loan executives to us. Subsequently, as a footnote, we've carried this on in various different aspects, the United States Navy. And I think uh, the, the VCNO, uh, Admiral Bill Lesher, told me that, uh, we're, that, that senior Navy staff is being invited on a quarterly basis to a Fortune 50 executive committee quarterly meetings as part of a team member because they're actually learning from the Navy some of the things we're doing. So it was a quid pro quo. But getting back to optimization, 
and I use that word, I want to come back to optimization, but getting it, the, the Navy to, to, to fundamentally operate, and I mean naval services, you know, on a fully optimal basis, we have some room to go. But let me say something that, that I want to make sure that everybody understands. We were on a call the other day talking about cyber. Navy's call was always first to fight because we were deployed. By definition, we can be there within X hours. Um, the CNO and I, after we got exfiltrated twice uh, by subcontractors and brought in a, an amazing group of both civilians and, and, and uh, government employees and uniformed employees and did the, the comprehensive strategic uh, study for cyber, um, we realized that, you know what, we're going to have to fight to get off the pier. I will almost lay a $5 bill on the table right now and saying a major conflict in five years might not be kinetic. It, it will, will be cyber. Be, it, will, it will be interruption of the financial system. It'll be interruption of the food distribution system. It'll be leveraged to hobble whatever situation might be. It might be us. It might be the target that, that the adversary is after. Uh, now, kinetic action might happen after with that, but the leading event might be non-kinetic. Non and we have to start thinking about this because it is absolutely critical. If you can't get, you know, the, 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 the lead on the target because you, you can't, your targeting system doesn't work, you're basically hobbled. We got to start focusing on this. And I don't mean talk. I mean, starting to do, uh, you know, it's amazing. I sat there and after we, we, um, after we had uh, this review, uh, I kept thinking, okay, how are we really going to get after this? And Dana Deasy was the CIO, and he said, "You know, Richard, you've been in the building of Bible as long as I have. You have to, you have to have somebody with a title uh, to really command uh, uh, the the organization to say, hey, we're going to shift.' So I said, "Okay, you know what? We need another Assistant Secretary of the Navy Cyber." Uh, and realizing that we were under a you know headcount constraint, and we'd done a pretty good job of getting our headcount down in the Secretariat, um, I was even prepared to say, "Okay, you know what?" We'll take one of our existing assistant secretary Navy slots and convert that to cyber and take the operating entity and then put it underneath another assistant secretary. Uh, went up to the Hill and presented that and the then chairman of the uh, Senate Armed Service Committee said, no, because I don't want another organization blooming up to 200 people. We got to get rid of that myopic short-sightedness. We got to understand the issue because this issue is more important than buying the F-35 or equally important as buying an F-35 or a new weapon system because cyber is a weapon system. And we have to start thinking about that. Our adversaries are going to use it against us. I would trade, I would gladly trade one F-35 or one littoral combat ship for those dollars to be put into cyber activities. There's so much I, to, to unpack there, Richard, but maybe a little bit more on this future of, of force development because how do we envision that future? I mean, we talked about cyber. That's probably one component of futuristic warfare and how uh, wars will be will be take take place. I think for people, it's very easy to imagine. For example, how how you do a better job with the Marine Corps. You, you fight at sea. You fight from sea. Uh, you, you develop better long long range and short range capabilities. That, that's something that people can put their mind. And if you talk about cyber, I think it's a little bit harder. And if you want people to envision something that is even more integrated about future warfare, I, I think that's when. Uh, sci-fi fictions come in rather than, than, than people's actual writings and policy guidance. So, so as, as the Navy Secretary, how do you envision these kind of future warfare? So how do you get the Navy or the military at large to get prepared for that? Well, you, you did a great job, Tiger, when you sent me the questions that you might be asking <laughs> in making an observation that 
after reading both the Commandant's planning guidance and the Navy strategy, you were, you, you were uh, I forgot the exact word you used, but you were somewhat perplexed that you didn't see many futuristic uh, <laughs> weapon systems being discussed, yes. such as railgun, uh, lasers, directed energy, et cetera. Yes. You know, there was a fascinating exercise, and I'll give full credit to Pat Shanahan, who was, who was the Deputy Secretary and then the Secretary of Defense. He made uh, the three services sit down and bin um, uh, their dollars spent on weapon system in the following way, legacy systems, support of legacy systems, i.e. sustainment, and then future uh, warfare systems. And it was an amazing drill because it allowed everybody in the organization to realize what the cost of sustainment was. We were, you know, I won't say we didn't understand it and we weren't focused on it. We understood it. We knew the dollars that had to be there. But when you step back and look at what the dollars are to support that legacy uh, system and what is out there now and what you'll be fighting with in the future, it was a terrific educational drill. Uh, one of the things that we did, which was a complete failure on my part, and I'll take full credit for this because I did not socialize this with my board of directors in an appropriate manner. And my board of directors was the 535 members in Congress who have a vote on what the United States Navy does and the Naval Forces. Um, if you remember, uh, one of the things that came out of the exercise in the Navy, we actually had fundamental agreement on not refueling the USS Truman for a cost of $5.2 billion and, and put it into mothballs. It was uh, the oldest carrier that we had. It was the most expensive to operate. So just taking the refueling charges and not really walking in the operational charges um, and taking that money. So it's a billion dollars to mothball. Let's do some simple math and say you have $4 billion now to go spend somewhere else. This was in concert with getting our public shipyards up to speed on maintenance because the maintenance turn on an aircraft carrier is just horrific. We just, we need to take 30% out of there right off the bat. And there are people that are helping us, Carnival Line Cruises. You know, they, they bring in one of their huge, amazing floating cities and they refurbish and re-engine and, and, and the whole thing in 14 months. You know, we can't get a carrier out anywhere near that, but we need to go out and find out the improvements and best practices of other organizations to do that. So if we could increase the flow through maintenance, we would have more availability from our existing aircraft carrier fleet and we could take one out and abandon assets. You know, you know, this is done in corporate America when it's not performing to what you can buy new, you abandon it because the, the drag on capital is too great. Uh, I did not do a good job at all uh, explaining that to the Hill uh, because we, 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 we couldn't get that through. Uh, but would I have loved to take $4 billion and put it into futuristic weapon systems? Yes, I would. But I don't want to sit there and just say, I'd open the gates to our primes and go, can you deliver me what you're working on now for directed energy and what you have in your pipeline? One of the most fascinating things that's going on now is I would call it a renaissance in, in, in uh, American business on finding dual use applications for products that would pertain to the Department of Defense. And here is the stumbling block. Many of these companies have amazing solutions for us, but they're small. And when they walk into the DOD acquisition system, they just get ground up. They don't have, they don't have the bandwidth to do it. This is where you know, the primes are basically a great utility to, uh, to, to go out and buy that technology because they know how to sell it in. I think we really do need to open up avenues where I can go to entrepreneurs. I can go to young startup companies and provide them, you know, we might not buy the product right off the bat, but watch it closely 
uh, start working with them on what they need to do and how they can sell it in. You'll hear about the great valley of death when it comes to technologies and new solutions. And, and what that really means is you have a whole bunch of people pitching amazing products over the moat, but there's no one there to catch it. So, you know, the doorbell's not being answered. One of the things that, um, that we're doing in an organization that I'm associated with is providing um, uh, support and, and a campaign plan for some of these solutions to be brought into the Pentagon. We jokingly say, you know, we're smuggling great technologies into the Pentagon. Um, but this is what we need to do. The system has to open itself up. And without getting too, too loud on my soapbox, it goes down to, I think, one root problem that we have. And that is we have lost the bubble on risk management. We want to get risk down to zero or as close to zero as we can. Well, there's two ways to do that. One, you, you buy your way out of it. And we've proven we're almost there that you can't afford that. Two, you don't do the mission. So you know what? The 85% solution in some cases has to be a path. I'm not saying it's universal, but we got to start understanding risk, taking risk and managing risk. The irony is, Tiger, in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, corporate America looked to the Pentagon for two things, industrial production and risk management. And we have totally lost the bubble on both, I think. Are we getting them back? We certainly are, industrial process. Uh, the F-18 is a fine program, fine uh, example of that. Uh, surface warfare, they're starting to adopt many of the same best practices. A and under the aegis of, of uh, the CNO and VCNO, we're reaching out to corporate America and saying, let us look at your best practices and see what, what is actually applicable to us. Gone are the days when the Pentagon sits there and goes, we can't buy from corporate America because we're the Pentagon. We're so uniquely different. We aren't. And especially as we move towards these issues of cyber as an example, I would look behind corporate America and work side by side with corporate America because the threats are exactly the same. There's no difference. Richard, maybe we should unpack uh, this this relationship between uh, the private sector and the defense sector a, a little bit more because I was talking to a friend who is very knowledgeable about uh, the, the national security issues and he was explaining this to me that, that the, the bureaucracy, uh, the, the sort of the conduit between uh, contractors and the DOD and the conduit between the DOD and Congress. I mean, the, the bureaucracy makes it so hard to allow in for new entrants, especially at an age where commercial, the, the line between commercial military tech and, and actual military military tech has become increasingly blurred. So you would actually need startups to have a sustained five or 10 year contract and, and be able to innovate because they don't just deliver the product to you. They, they would need sustained funding, but, but it seems that we, we don't have that. And part of it is risk management, as you said, because the DOT is not willing to invest like a venture capitalist and say, I will invest in 10 startups. And as long as one of them succeeds, that, that's already a huge success to me. Because is that just because the government is now used to, to thinking in this innovative way where we have lost uh, the, the way uh, things used to be? Because it, it seems that you know many decades ago, the US used to be very good at uh, establishing private-public partnerships and so on? I think there's multiple answers. You've hit the nail exactly right on the head, and I think there's multiple answers to this. Um, I believe the example that uh, I heard once was the A-4 aircraft was designed by North American aircraft on a, on a cocktail napkin by listening to the requirements uh, from the Navy, uh, and it was in production something like 20 months later. Um, we had, you know, an amazing industrial base that would also take risk. And nowadays, um, uh, the, the explanation that I got from our primes is, well, it's way too much capital and way too much risk. 
we need all the requirements first and then we'll develop for you a solution for the requirements you give us. Well, there's a couple of flaws in that that, that are proven out with the platforms. I mean, the F-35 took how many years? How many years to develop the F-35? So I don't think that the um, uh, United States government should truly be a venture capitalist. I think the United States government with DOD needs to have eyes and ears and the ability to invest when appropriate looking at what's going on at this amazing uh, uh, greenhouse, flower bed, whatever you want to call it, called United States industry and developing technologies. Uh, DIUX is a great effort that um, Ash Carter put forward and is operating now on its second uh, iteration, uh, version 2.0. I think that's a start, but we have to get after the full acquisition process. I mean, we have to have the ability of people to take risk. Here's one thing that's stunning. Um, it took me two months to convince him to, um, to come join the Navy because he had a great job down in Tampa at SOCOM, but Hondo Gertz, who um, truly is a legend, and I will call a national asset, um, had done an amazing job on the acquisition uh, uh, for SOCOM. Um, and we brought him up to Navy and uh, we did a whole bunch of things and he did amazing things uh, in the Navy itself. But one of the ones that I loved in surface warfare was we found out, and I'm going to use just rough numbers, and, and, and this is going to be almost conceptual, but uh, we have the, 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 the person, the, the U.S. government person doing the work, whether uniformed or civilian, and then you had, um, uh, let's call it management, one tier up, and if in fact the cost of doing the repair, you know, exceeded a certain amount of money, the person had to go one layer up. Well, we had clamped that down to $5,000 because of some violations that happened in the past or improprieties. Well, Gertz took it up, I believe, $30,000. And I, I think we went up to $100,000, uh, uh, basically credit line for that person's authority to approve. And lo and behold, process, process throughput improved like 30%. Of course it did, because you're taking the layers out. And you know what? There is someone who's going to violate that $100,000 uh, uh, limit by doing something wrong. But you know what? That is the cost of doing business because I can't believe if we have the appropriate controls in place, it's all gonna be one, 2%. I mean, that's human nature. Look at what happens in you know, the corporate environment. Um, you know, the, yes, there's gonna be problems now and then they're gonna be de minimis. But the problem in the United States government is one of these hits the headlines and the 535 directors of the Department of Defense, i.e. Congress goes, this can never happen again. We're going to have to throttle down and absolutely ameliorate any risk uh, assessment that this person has. So it become institutional that no one makes a risk assessment. This is what we have to correct. That's the root cause. So, so going back to talking about your board of directors, the, the Congress, uh, do you think they gave you enough money? I, I know you, you will probably say no. Uh, there's a lack of budget for the military, for, for the Navy. Uh, and, and is that also part of the reason why uh, the United States military could not continue to, to innovate or, or invest uh, at the previous pace? I am a complete contrarian with you on this. I think the United States Department of Defense has too much money. We don't, we don't think anymore. We throw money at things. One of the things that we tried to do was, was the biggest metric it seemed when I got, when it was just an observation of mine, even though it's on the Defense Business Board, was the, um, the metric that was used for Department of Defense is, is input metrics, not output metrics. How much money do we put into it? Not what was coming out the other side per se. There, you know, it sounds like blasphemy, 
But the fact of the matter is we have enough money where we don't really have to quote unquote think. We can throw money at the problem. I think what you need to do is actually turn around and go, okay, you're gonna to have to make some decisions. You're gonna to have to think about this. And I would, I, would, I would tell you that you take Shanahan's example of legacy, sustainment, and new weapon system, and you choke someone's budget down, they're gonna understand those bins really quickly. And, and one thing that the United States military does really well is get out and get after the mission. They will get it done, um, but you have to provide the environment to do it. So you can't just choke the money down. You, you should choke the money down and go, also, also, we're gonna give you more responsibility on how to spend this money. One of the things that absolutely drove me insane was on the appropriation side of the house, we could only get money each year to do surface warfare. It was, it was, it was very problematic to do multi-year contracting because you didn't have the appropriation to follow through and do meaningful multi-year contracts. And what I mean by that is going on five years. The reason being, as I understand it, appropriations is all about controlling the dollars so they don't go off the rails. But the fact of the matter is, uh, our, you know, our contractors who were doing the contract said, look, you give me, a, you know, a one-year contract, a two-year contract, how am I going to keep the 11,000 people that I have employed not knowing what's going to happen in year four and five? You, you got to have common sense on how you deploy the capital. So Richard, it sounds like to me that it is both not a money problem, but also a money problem, meaning that it was previously because we did not uh, spend the money or use the money or think of the money in the right way, such that it accumulated into a kind of a cultural issue that, that is preventing the US military from further innovating, from doing its good job in investing. And, and right now it, it takes a combination of changing the culture, changing the th thinking and, and bringing in outside talent uh, and, and maintaining a certain kind of type of budget. That's exactly true. And, and let's remember when we talk about the, 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 the Department of Defense, it's an amazing combination of uniform and civilian teammates. So when I talk about the United States Navy, I'm talking about my, you know, our sailors, I'm talking about our Marines, and I'm talking about the civilian team. They are integral. So when we're talking about, about the thought process and we're talking about all the things that apply to the United States Navy, it's both our civilian teammates and our uniform folks. And when you talk about changing thought pattern, and the culture of risk assessment, you're gonna get after all, that whole team together. And that is what's critical. And you know, the hardest thing to do in any sort of environment is change culture. It, it is the hardest thing to do, but this is where you need all the help you can get. And there are many up on the Hill, on the board of directors who really care about this. Mac Thornberry and his team worked on giving the DOD the ability to buy differently and the problem was people in the DOD didn't, in many cases, didn't want to take the risk of using, you know, other transaction authorities. They're called OTAs. We now have CIBR, small business investment programs. I mean, they're giving us some of these tools. Um, those are great, but now we need to get the culture of using those tools. You know, that is the cultural shift we have to really engage. People bring up, and there's two sides to this argument, you know, um, do we have too much money because we see a technology we want? but we have no idea how to integrate it. So now you have this new layer that's grown over the last 20, 30 years of integrators. You know, they don't own the technology per se, but they sit there and they're big organizations that get to, you know, write a big contract and said, we'll now integrate this part of the radar into the weapon system. Well, you know, once upon a time, we had 1100 engineers uh, uh, in the United States Navy that would actually work the problem. 
due, due to downsizing, the peace dividend way back in the 90s, you know, we don't have that engineering base anymore. Do you reconstruct it? Were the cost savings there? Has anyone done an analysis on that? You know, what we used to do pre-downsize versus post-downsize. Um, I really think that there's no one who better understands the problem than the person who is actually facing the problem. And to give them some support, indigenous support, uh, and, and the ability to go out and look for solutions, I think is the, is, the, is the step we need to take. Now, when it comes to a full weapon systems, hey, you know what? Love the primes, they do a great job there. But you know, when it comes to looking at your supply chain, <laughs> there's off the shelf systems right now that you know every single Fortune 500 company uses, but for some reason, we can't seem to get it in without overlaying some massive integrator. Why can't we have some pilot programs, allow these services to have pilot programs? There's wildly intelligent people in our, in our uniform services that understand risk, that want to take risk, that really want to grow with this. Give them the chance to do that. Uh, Richard, I know you spend a lot of time in businesses and you've previously mentioned multiple times that running the Navy is a lot like running a business. And you talked about how you're a capitalist and you, you like certain kind of uh, market-based thinking. How do you think the government should go about maintaining a balance between using free market principles, but also some, some of the kind of uh, government bureaucracies to not uh, fully uh, go, go into the side of free market? Uh, like Yeah, it, it, one of the things that really woke me up, Tiger, was that, um, um, yes, the government wants, you know, the, the uh, best money can buy from the lowest bidder, but there's also uh, uh, equities, as they call them, and, you know, the shipbuilding contingency wants ships to be built in their areas because it's all about employment. I get it, um, but there's a lot of tails wagging the dog. Um, and what you do in a lot of cases say, fine, if this is the environment I have to work in, how do I optimize that? So what's happened, which is fascinating, is we've done some amazing optimization, but I don't think we truly understood what the concept of optimization is, i.e., whether it's just in time, whether it's price performance. Um, uh, here's an example. I mean, we got ourselves optimized uh, when it comes to the drive shaft for, for Virginia-class submarines and for DDGs. We have one founder, one foundry that makes all the drive shafts. One foundry, think about one. What happens when one becomes zero? There's no alternative. So we've optimized ourselves in that case right on the razor's edge and you can fall off the side. So what does that really mean? You have to keep two people in business, that's gonna be a little more expensive. Well, what I'm saying is maybe you balance that expense off the risk that you're taking. And you still might turn around and say, I think I can control this with one and I'll take the risk. Or I do have the resources to support two because they can do more than just make one shank. I mean, you know, it's the same decision a CEO has to make with deployment of capital. The Secretary of the United States Navy, by Title 10, you know, is to man, equip, train, buy those resources necessary for the Secretary of Defense and the combatant commanders to, do, to complete their mission. That is running a business. You know, you're buying, you're buying things, you're recruiting people, you're training, and you're delivering. I mean, I don't know how else you define business. Last question on this topic, which is about the budget. We should maybe tie everything back with, with money. Uh, what, what do you think of the DOD budget? Uh, because I, I remember previously General Dunford, who, who was the previous chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Independent Commission on Defense, uh, back in 2018 said, in order to sustain the current plans, you would take at least three to 5% of real growth in, in budget. And right now, 
President Biden proposed the fiscal year 2021, uh, 2022 budget, and that drew a lot of criticism from uh, the Republican side, and the, I think the ranking members of the Senate and House Armed Services Committees recently wrote an op-ed basically saying the budget seems to be a lot, but if you actually compare it with China and Russia, if you take into consideration of purchasing power parity, if you take out some of the uh, budgetary items, um, then you realize the United States budget is actually not that much, and in certain areas we're actually short. So. On, on, from your vantage point, obviously we're doing a lot of dimension reduction here, but there's a lot of headlines saying, oh, the U.S. military budget is uh, more than the, the next nine added up together, so we should you know, shrink the military industrial complex and so on. So what, what do you think of this de debate in, in a more nuanced way? Many, many ingredients in your stew that you just put on my plate. <laughs> um, uh, I, I love the size of the money. I, I think we need to analyze where the, once again, this is input. Uh, judging the size of the input into the system and not the output of the system. Uh, here's a fine example, Tiger, uh, when it comes to the dollars and cents. Um, here we are uh, now, I think Navy's probably leaning on the other two services to get a bigger slice of the pie. Traditionally, it's always been a third, a third, a third. Uh, and it's, you know, shipbuilding is the drumbeat. Well, you know, you build uh, two more ships, you got to bring on the staff and the manpower to man those ships. And the most expensive asset we have, bar none, is the human being. Because there's a tail to it, there's a training aspect to it, uh, there's turnover, there's co the cost on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a sailor or Marine on their lifetime in the United States uh, Department of the Navy is, is very meaningful. I mean, look at the personnel side of the budget. It's not over 50% yet, but it's surely barking at the door. Um, so when we talk about growing, uh, uh, you know, surface warfare ships by a, this amount of a percentage. It's not just the dollars in. I hear no talk about sustainment of the actual steel itself. And then what about the people increase? I'm not against it. We have to actually balance it with what we're going to be fighting with in the future. And what about the cyber aspect of this thing, where a dollar can actually probably buy you many different things compared to a fixed asset that has a direct mission? And I'm, I'm not saying we, we take that away because we still have that mission. This is the conversation that we have to have. Would I love to have you know, the budget that was given to the United States Navy and the ability to actually you know, carve a little bit off and do the pilot programs to see if we could go forward? Yes. And you know what? In the 50s and in the 40s and in the 60s and 70s, we probably did that. But then there were probably some mistakes were made. And I get Congress's role. That is their role. They say, we're never going to let this mistake happen again. We are now going to make sure that we're in control of absolutely everything, which is the NDAA. Look at how, measure the, the, the size of the NDAA from the first one to where we are now. It's all about micromanagement. Richard, there's still so much to unpack over there, but uh, I, I, given the constraint of time and so much more to talk about, maybe we'll move on. Um, perhaps we can talk a little bit more about the ethical side of things, especially the Eddie Gallagher case, which uh, over the past couple of years became really national headlines over and over again. So to, to give our listeners a quick overview, he was a re basically retired United States Navy SEAL who he came under the national attention ba basically because he was charged in September 2018 with 10 offenses. Uh, and, and the accusation was that his uh, fellow Navy SEALs uh, was accusing him for basically murdering an ISIS prisoner, 17-year-old ISIS prisoner. He took a photograph with the, with the president and sent the photo to his friends. And in, in, on July 2nd, 2019, Gallagher was convicted of posing uh, for a photo with the corpse 
but he was acquitted of all the other charges and back and forth. There was a lot of other details we'll get into in, in, in a bit. Uh, and, and all the all the drama eventually culminated in your resignation because uh, you really disliked the way that President Trump uh, intervened with the cases and politicized uh, the case. It, it just it is very messy. There's a lot to unfold, but maybe we can start this uh, section of discussion by just getting your vantage point. How, how did you th see things unfolded in those months and years? Well, we got to set the record straight. I did not resign. I was fired. And I was fired, uh, terminated by the president of the United States, because that's who I report to, unlike the, the, the comment where I think Secretary Esper said, I fired him. He does not have to report it fire and he knows that. Uh, it, was, it was a termination by the president of the United States because of what I believe. Let's go down to, to, to uh, we'll start at the end and work forward. What was the, what was the problem that brought it all to a, a pinhead? Um, uh, the, the trial was a surprise. Um, when you had the, one of the teammates said, uh, you know, I actually uh, put my finger over the uh, crack tube and, and, and suffocated the, the uh, prisoner. Uh, and since um, uh, the United States Navy prosecution actually had given him immunity, there's no double jeopardy. So, you know, that, that, that kind of blew a lot of the, uh, uh, the charges out of the water. And we ended up with uh, uh, the, the posing with the photograph. Um, people might say, you know, Mr. Secretary, you're, you're, you're ruining a guy's career by one photograph. Um, well, uh, I think that's tremendously important because one of the things that I had learned from day one on becoming Secretary of the Navy, if you remember in 17, we had two uh, wildly tragic and traumatic collisions at sea over in the Pacific. Uh, we set up a review. We brought in, again, civilians, uh, uh, private sector people, uh, uniform people, and, and civilian teammates, and we studied what went on. And we, the, the, the solution, I mean, the, the, the uh, summation was, was fairly interesting. And we called it the, the normalization of deviation. So let us say you're going to go out onto a mission, and you only have 90% or 95% of your assets or 95% of the people are, or 100% or of the people are only trained for 95% of the mission. You send them out, the mission gets completed and you come back and you're working under great tempo uh, and you have to recycle, whether it be ships, whether it be sailors, Marines, SEALs, whatever the case may be, and you put them back out again. And this time there's only 90% uh, capability and they survive the mission. Um, well, this can keep happening and think of a, of, a, of, a, of a bow of a birch. Sooner or later, you're gonna bend this deviation down to a percentage rate where the system can't hold it and it breaks and the whole system decomposes. This is the normalization of deviation and it can apply anywhere. And I truly believe that when you have a picture like this, that's the beginning of, uh, of deviation if in fact you normalize it. If you turn around and say, uh, you know what? This war on terror is really nasty. We're really overtaxing all our people. Um, they, they should be allowed to do this. No, no. You have to have some sort of standard for a whole bunch of reasons. One, uh, amongst our friends and allies, they have to know that we are doing the right thing. One of the reasons that the United States military is held in such high regard is that we do keep ourselves to amazing standards and rightly so. And you have to fight for those standards and you have to make sure you put the energy in to make sure those standards don't, don't decay. 
And two, which a lot of people don't think about, is our competitors and our enemies. They see us doing this. Well, then they can put it right back in our face going, look, we'll behead people on the video. You sit there and pose with one of our combatant commanders dead. I mean, combatants dead. There is a standard that we have to keep up. So when it came time to um, uh, finally terminate, because uh, he put in, if you remember, uh, uh, then Chief Gallagher put in his resignation papers, uh, retirement papers, and was processed out. And if you remember, the Navy turned around and said, okay, uh, we're going we're gonna to bust him one rank. And the president said, no, you aren't. You're going to make sure his rank remains the same. We said, okay. One of the things that I wanted to ensure that we did, absolutely ensure that we did, was to get Chief Gallagher in front of his peers for a peer review. And why was this so important? Within all the services, there's a lot of tribes. And when I say tribes, there's the submariners, there's the aviators, there's the special warfare operators, you know, there's the cryptologists. Everyone has their own community and their own tribe. And there's a lot of, yes, they're all wearing the same uniforms within the same service, but they have their own ethos that is in line with the primary mission of the, of the service, but they have their own character and they have their own structure. And when it comes to our special warfare operators on the Navy side, the SEALs, there is a big tradition of their, of their tribal rights. And I wanted to make sure that, that Chief Gallagher's tribe had the final vote on whether Chief Gallagher should retain his uh, badge, his trident, or not. That's what I was concerned about. If, if, if that uh, peer review board turned around and said, we have reviewed everything and we believe Chief Gallagher should retain his, his trident, all in, okay, that's fine. The deal that I was working with, uh, the CNO and Admiral Green, was let's get them through there. And if the board turns around and says, absolutely not, Chief Gallagher does not represent what the SEALs are about, We're, we recommend taking his trident. I wanted that on the record and that I'd be more than, I won't say more than happy. I would, I would, I would overturn them and give Chief Gallagher his trident back if, in fact, the president you know, would say, I'll let the Navy take care of this themselves. Uh, I had no problem being quote unquote the bad guy because in my mind, the institution, the Naval Institution understood that his peer review board had made the decision. Is the peer review board you mentioned the same as the one that would be chaired basically internally by the Navy SEALs? I, I remember reading that Rear Admiral Colin Green, who was the former commander of the Navy, Naval Special Warfare C Command and de facto the head of SEALs on both coasts. Uh, he, he, first of all, came in as a reformer. He really... Uh, saw Gallagher as the bug in the system and wanted to pull the trident from Gallagher, and, and which would be considered the sort of the most severe punishment that the tribe is kicking you out of the, the force, the elite force. So, so was, was that process basically the one that you, you wish that he had properly gone through, but, but that was interfered by President Trump? Yes. And, and basically, you, you were saying that had President Trump given the board, the actual process to go through the, the due process of reviewing Gallagher's case and, and agree not to interfere, you would have been okay with the, whatever decision that that board. Well, no, let's take it up one. Had he just turned around and said, Navy, what are you gonna do? And the plan that I laid out was we're gonna put him in front of a, of a, of a peer review board. And just as I told you, if in fact the peer review board says no, I will reinstate I will mandate that he gets to keep his, his trident. 
And that was the message to the White House that 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 uh, Esper said I was working a deal behind his back. Uh, but uh, you know, his chief of staff and and the White House chief of staff and the White House counsel at that point all knew what the deal was. Um, and you know, everyone said, "Well, how can you possibly think you can bargain with with the president of the United States, no matter who it is?" And it wasn't a bargain; it was it was trying to get to a solution that would prevent the president from having to do something like this um, for his, you know, for his own uh, legacy. So, did you feel like there was an ultimate miscommunication between you and Secretary Esper and 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 the president? Were were because why why would Secretary Esper come out so strongly and say, "I fired"? Richard Spencer, even even though it seemed to everybody in hindsight to be quite clear what what the intention ultimately lied. Well, it's a very interesting question because um, when the Halifax conference was going on, which is when this was all coming to a head, which is a security conference that, that is held up in Halifax um, in Canada. Um, uh, we were trying everything. There was a lot of effort put forward on, on trying to solve this problem without, you know, a lot of mud being slung around and, and ending up sticking on people. And what I mean by that is um, uh, I remember uh, Secretary Ryan McCarthy and uh, General Milley were on, scheduled to go on Air Force One, I believe, Friday night of that, of that weekend down for a dignified transfer of remains in Dover with the president. And um, I give uh, I give uh, the chairman great credit because uh, he went up to the front of the plane and said, you know, Mr. President, um, this stuff is tribal. Um, uh, let the services discern what is going to happen to their people. Um, and then if you don't like it, you know, you can override, but let the services come to a complete conclusion. It's tribal. Uh, and uh, um, I remember speaking to, uh, to to General Milley on Friday night, and the president had agreed that, yep, it's tribal. Okay, I get it. Uh, something happened between uh, Friday night and, and Sunday morning um, that, interestingly enough, no one can really explain. Uh, so I don't know if it was politics. Uh, I, I have no idea, but it, you know, it happened. And that's when you walk into a job like this, you're a grown up. Uh, you work at the pleasure of the president. And when the pleasure is exhausted, you are depart. I, I guess the President Trump's involvement was obviously heavily politicized. And, and that, that, that politicization obviously complicated the matter. But I guess in theory, when the president sees injustice in his eyes, I mean, he is supposed to overrule the military's decision because of this, the structure of civilian oversight of the military, right? But the, but the Gallagher case seemed to be a very tricky situation because it was the Navy who tried to enforce ethical rules and they haven't reached, really reached a, a conclusion yet about what to do, but the president just already uh, kind of stepped in and said, it's okay to go against the rules in this way and that way. Uh, and he was already trying to overrule something that, that hasn't, a decision that hasn't really been reached. So. Do you think President Trump was, was justified in carrying out these actions because of this nature of civilian oversight? Or, or did you feel like ultimately there, there was something off? Um, well, there's, there's a difference between civilian oversight and undue command influence. Uh, and there's a huge difference there. Um, look, the president, my line was uh, the president can do whatever he wants to do. Um, does he have, my line was, does he have the right to do it? Yes. Is it, is it the right thing to do? That's the question. Um, and that's where the differences came between us.
in the letter to to President Trump acknowledging the the termination, as you said, you actually did not just say I want to spend more time with family and, and friends, <laughs> like like what people usually would say in a in a letter. You you actually said you cannot in good conscience obey an order that I believe violates the sacred oath I took in the presence of my family, my flag, and my faith to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. Um, so so back then you, you felt like the the, the problem ran something deeper. Normalization uh, uh, of deviation, Tiger. Normalization of deviation. You know, a half a degree here, a quarter a degree here, any sort of corrosion. You have a responsibility, I truly believe, as Secretary of the Navy, to, uh, you're a trustee of an institution. Don't get me wrong, you have leadership roles and, and, and all that, but fundamentally, when it comes to something like this, you are a trustee of an organization for the long term. You're in and you're out, as the next one will be in and out. So you have to make sure that you're going to buttress and, and support, you know, the, the foundation of what this is all built on. And I do believe it goes all the way back to, 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 to the founding fathers on how we protect this little experiment we have called democracy. Um, I, I, there is a new podcast out recently called The, the Line, which explores a lot of the issues that we talked about, the psyches, the actions of Navy SEALs to shed light on the intricacies of the uh, Gallagher case. And maybe to, to term the word the line, do you think that in the post 9-11 era, the line between you know, heroism and murder, between war fighting and, and war crimes has really become more blurry and, and hard to distinguish for many soldiers in, in the elite units? On one hand, because of the greater environment uh, for fear, there, there's, there's some kind of factors underlying going on, the, the, the relationship between the US and certain other, whether you call it nation states or religions, but on the other hand, also their own mental health problems. And sometimes um, th there isn't enough of a support structure to a man with issues like Gallagher. So how do you see the line has become increasingly blurred? How do you think we should address that? Well, look, from day one, uh, the, the position of both the CNO and myself when it came to uh, Chief Gallagher was, the Navy has a, a culpable hand in, 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 the, in what happened here. Um, and when you say that uh, uh, Admiral Green was a change agent, he was, but Admiral Szymanski, his predecessor, was one of the first ones to really put the, the change in place. We'd seen, again, a, a normalization of deviation in the special warfare uh, community, and not just the Navy, but the other services also. Um, and let me back up for a second. Do we need a special warfare operating unit? Most definitely we do. Are they the highest trained organizations out there? I believe they truly are professionally the best trained that we have on the face of the earth. Uh, you know, when people say, well, it's really hard to discern the difference between civilians and enemy combatants. No, these are professionals that, that, that are trained to do this. Where did we go wrong as the United States Navy? Deploying someone eight times. I mean, just because the person sticks their hand up doesn't mean we should pick them. And now we have, we have much more, uh, many more resources in supporting the mental health, the physical health, both pre-deployment and post-deployment for these operators. You, you know, it is a grueling job. I mean, one of the things you heard on both the line and on the testimony was that this platoon was right next to our quote unquote allies that were torturing you know, the enemy combatants. Well, how can you sit there when someone's just picked off one of your friends as being a, a SEAL member and you hear the torture going on next door, literally on a mud wall away, 
and not kind of take this into your own hands. This is really hard stuff. We are asking these special operators to do amazing things. And I mean both ethically you know, and physically. And we have to be there to support them to make sure that everything is staying quote unquote healthy, appropriate and in the bounds of the rules of war. Um, because at the end of the day, the U.S. is held at this level amongst our allies and even in the eyes of our enemy as people who uphold their ethical standards and the rules of war. I was listening to a New York Times podcast uh, explaining the situation. They were saying that there seems to be two distinct con contrasting mindsets within the military. One is called the pirates, which embody the idea of being able to do whatever one wants. And the other is the Boy Scouts, which emphasize more rules and accountability. Do, do you think there indeed is a tension there where rather most people are still really following the rules and accountability or at least, or at least have a sense of conscience and, and morality that, that, that guide them and there were just slight deviations? I mean, how, how should we think about uh, whether this is an outlier, whether this is a structural issue, whether uh, th there is something going on within the military. Uh, my first reaction is that the, the pirate Boy Scout analogy was created by the pirates. Um, Boy Scout kind of <laughs> yeah. is, is used, I'm sure in this case is a demeaning uh, phrase, which is, which is yeah. inappropriate. But um, no, I, again, we've always said this is 99.9% .9 not the case. Um, look, uh, the, the training that we had put in place under Admiral Szymanski and really engaged in full force under General I mean, Admiral Green and now uh, uh, um, uh, Wayman Howard, Admiral Howard is doing a, a bang up job also, caused enough change where these uh, new members to the platoon did what they did, which was they said, this is not right, we got to turn it in. That to me, if you look at the situation, you know, there was some grievous things that happened and the system failed in certain ways. But on the good side, the fact that these SEALs stood up and said, there is something wrong going on here, we have to let you know, command know, means that we're doing something right. Um, you asked earlier, you know, do, what, what is going on with special warfare? Yes, we do need this. It's one, of the, it's one of the arrows in the quiver. But we also have to make sure that it's used appropriately, both, both on tempo, uh, so demand for this resource, and what it's being used for. It, it is, it, it's a fine line. But the fact remains that, that I would call the pirates, the, the 0.1% um, uh, exception, I would call the 99.9, .9, the professionals that the SEALs are. I, I guess looking back, Richard, how would you reflect on the experience and, and also the decision of President Trump? I, I, I personally am puzzled why he decided to do what he did because in some way, it has nothing to do with whether you support the military or whether you're a Republican or whether you can gather votes. I, I believe the vast majority of Americans would say we want ethical soldiers fighting out there, defending this country. And, and I don't think people look at the Eddie Gallagher case and, and really say that that's a hero there we, we, we ought to protect. So uh, uh, what, do you, why do you think President Trump was even motivated or incentivized to do what he, he did? Because that seems very um, counter to counterintuitive even. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, I have <laughs> no idea uh, what made the president tick uh, on many fronts. Uh, he did some great policy uh, issues. I, I give him great credit for that. This was one that was just a complete conundrum for me. Um, and as far as, you know, people said, was it a tough decision to make? The lead up and all that went on for the year prior, year plus prior, was 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 a lot of grist in the mill. But when it came time to make the decision, it was the easiest decision to make. 
Um, the sad part of it was, is quote unquote, to use the phrase, what was left on the beach. Uh, we had a lot of great things going on in the Navy that uh, continue to go on, but I would love to have seen them, you know, across the finish line. Uh, and that, that was disappointing. But when it comes to something as important as ethical structure, and and care for the institution. Uh, this was a no-brainer of a decision because the reason we have civilian oversight in many ways is to have that circuit breaker so the uniform don't get caught in that grist mill. And I was more than happy to make that decision uh, because it it really you know had to be made so so the discussion could be had. Um, I, you know, it'd be fascinating to see what a poll is on how many people think that uh, Chief Gallagher is a quote-unquote hero versus what he did. I still think there's probably a, a good part of Americans that said, you know, anyone who puts a uniform on, you know, is a hero. And don't get me wrong, um, for raising your hand, you're doing the right thing. Hero is a very, very strong word. And uh, one of the things that I worry about is that we dilute it too much. Uh, because when someone does something amazing and over the top, what is our new name for that person who really, you know, does something extraordinary? Is that the uber hero? I don't know. Uh. Richard, you used the phrase deviation from uh, from norm, and I think a lot of people would even say that Trump is a deviation of norm himself. And and I, I don't know how you, you view uh, the four years of his presidency where where the United States of America is headed, because uh, in in some way the pessimists would say, you know, Trump embodied a certain type of politics or politicization of uh, policy issues or ethical issues, such that it will only go downhill from here. You know, the, the politics, the drama will get more involved. The optimist might say, you know, th this is really not the norm. And, and, and uh, even the way that President Trump interfered things sh should not be considered as, as normal. So uh, how do you see things going forward with military, with ethical decisions, with involvement of politics? Tiger, my answer to that is that we are an amazingly resilient culture. We're an amazingly resilient organization. Uh, we will survive this and, and it will be uh, hopefully, you know, just a, 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 a deviation from normal. Um, and when we look back in history, maybe, you know, if I'm just to try to find good out of it, you know, maybe this was needed and some things coming out of this, the learning lessons coming out of this. One of the things that we used to bang the drum on, uh, uh, Admiral Richardson, uh, Gilday, was, you know, when we have accidents, you know, what do we learn? Yes, there's the tragedy, don't get me wrong, but we can't walk away saying that was a tragedy. We have to walk away saying that was a tragedy, but what did we learn? Maybe this is a learning experience for this, again, as I call it, this experiment we call democracy. Just to wrap things up, you know, both taking a step back of all the policy issues we talked about and the ethical issues to talk about, maybe we can talk about the, the philosophy of war uh, and, and governance. Uh, do, do you think how, how do you think of the concepts of force and counterforce uh, as, as they are inherently embedded in civilizations? Do, namely, do, do you think forces and counterforces would always exist in, in societies? There will always be violence, either because some component of human nature uh, or, or because of some insufficiencies or in, inefficacies of human organization that will always lead to violence between us and therefore that will need some kind of deterrence of, of violence. So, you spend so much time in the military looking at those issues. How do you view this relationship? This is really a question that could go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, and it could be another hour answer, but um, yeah. <laughs> I, just summing it up, Tiger, um, go back to what we talked about in the beginning of our, our podcast here. 
Um, I truly believe um, in the most simplistic sense that the reason you have a Department of Defense is to give the State Department one more day to negotiate. Um, uh, and I take it one step further. It's not just the Department of Defense, it's commerce, it's health and human services, it's you know, you, you treasury, it's the whole of government. We have to get back to really thinking whole of government. Uh, and what I mean by that is that you know, we, should have, we, should, we should have representatives from every department in each other's department. We've integrated the Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, Coast Guard, you know, and Army uh, in jointness, all we all we do is strive for jointness. How about we do jointness for the United States government, where the Department of Defense understands what the Treasury Department's doing, and the Treasury Department understands what you know the Department of Defense is doing and how it's working with state. So the whole thing was that's supposed to go on at the cabinet level, but no, it has to be more integrated in the bowels of the operations. So you have power projection and you have kinetic war. I think is what you're asking. I actually think warfare can be waged without kinetics, which we talked about earlier also when you look at cyber. But let's ironically, if we look at China as our biggest competitor, let's go to Sun Tzu. I mean, one of his primary tenets is, you know, conquer the, uh, the competitor with the minimal amount of loss of the competitor's assets, so you own them. Um, Belt and Road Initiative, you could call that the weapon, people have called that the weaponization of capital. Um, is that the precursor of war, uh, meaning kinetic? Uh, you, could, you could extrapolate there. Uh, your question was kind of this bigger question of, as human beings, that we always think we have to fight for something, fight being a very multifaceted word. Um, I think I look at it the other way as, as the support of security. And I don't mean to just be cute with, with semantics. Uh, I really think if you look at, uh, again, our original conversations with the charge of the United States Navy, one of our primary things is to keep uh, uh, corporate and, and uh, uh, commercial uh, avenues of trade open. That's, you know, that's not power projection for war, that's power projection for the betterment of communities. Um, but at the end of the day, we always end up fighting as human beings. And that's a bigger question that I'll turn over to David Miller. <laughs> Do, do, do you worry about a situation where it's the tail wagging the dog? I mean, you previously mentioned this phrase earlier in the, in the interview, but under different contexts. By, by this phrase, I mean, you know, the society needs wars to legitimize the use of force and existence of the warrior class. Because, you, you were previously saying that the, the Defense Department is really there to support the whole government, to support the State Department to do negotiations. So you seem to take a more uh, a passive or, or secondary role of not, at least not, initiating wars, unnecessary wars, but, but a lot of people criticize the, you know, the quote unquote military industrial complex for, for always kind of engaging in some form of violence to, to legitimize the existence. It'll be an argument that continues. And I call that the natural torque of a democracy. Um, because when I look at uh, what you just said, my comments about the whole of government, it's a whole, what I'm saying is we have to have a holistic approach to a issue or a problem <clears throat> that has to be addressed. Um, um, the natural torque there that, uh, you know, the Lockheeds, the, 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 the primes, quote unquote, the Raytheons exist because, you know, we, we shoot tomahawks off or we use their weapon systems on a regular basis and, and it's a self-feeding cycle. I, I, I can't really support the, that the full theory that that you know we're going to pick we're always going to be at war because we have to support our industrial complex 
But it's, I tell you what, it's an argument that has to be continually applied to the situation because it keeps people honest and, and saying, here's how I disprove that argument. Um, and we have to have discussions on a continual basis, but they have to be informed discussions, data-based informed discussions. Uh, I, um, people know that President Eisenhower departed with, with a speech warning the U.S. citizens about the military-industrial complex. When you departed, or uh, did you have that sense of feeling? We're, we're, I mean, we're, we're talking about this. This it's even hard to really pin down what it means to be a military-industrial complex, but how you see it, and and and. No, I don't. I mean, I don't see it. it, it President Eisenhower, I believe, in my readings, was making a point. Um, yes, there is a section of our uh, economy that is dedicated to national security. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, if you look at the conversations we had earlier, I'm hoping more will be involved in national security uh, with their off-the-shelf products, to be very frank with you, which, again, is a, in some cases a contentious topic with some of those organizations. It's the beauty of democracy. It, it's messy, uh, and it has to it has to be discussed. It's done in the it's done in the, the, the sunlight. Nothing disinfects like sunlight, and we have to have these discussions in the open. Uh, I, I mean, do I go to sleep at night going, "My God, where's the next war?" No. Uh, do I go to sleep at night going, "We have apparatus in place to keep us safe," and that is my fundamental belief, uh, and that we're not out there quote unquote looking for a fight. But um, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on around the world that um, you know can threaten security to ourselves or our allies, which you know we haven't spent much time talking about our allies. But one of the reasons that I found uh, uh, Jim working for uh, Secretary Mattis early on was his second line of effort. He had three lines of effort. Second line of effort was uh, to uh, you know uh, build enhance the existing great constellation of friends and allies we have. It's the only way that we'll keep security at the level it is, is to have everybody involved because the diversification of points of view on what the problem is in, in, in the first step of this is, is the most beautiful thing in the world. What we think is a problem might not be a problem for India and they get a vote in this as, an, as a friend. Um, that's the beauty of the discussion of allies all working together. Is it, is it, is it ungangly? Is it awkward when you think you have the idea and you want to get it forward and someone else is home. Yes, it is, but it's the process that in many cases makes the decision even more uh, meaningful at the end of the day. Richard, there's so much more to talk about. Uh, I'm afraid we don't have time. I mean, you talked about allies. I would have really loved to ask you about the military to military relationships and how uh, that, that balance things out with, with, with politics. Especially when the politics don't 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 agree. I mean, you previously talked about the U.S. Philippines U.S. Thai relationships when the governments, the partisans, uh, didn't didn't uh, dis, didn't like each other, but the military still kept on talking. But uh, we will save all these questions for another time. But at the very end, I just want to ask you one last question. The name of our show is Policy Punchline. What would your punchline be for this interview, for your time as the as the Navy Secretary, for anything we've talked about? Uh, my punchline is uh, you live in this amazing country called the United States of America. It's a democracy, and our forefathers basically created an owner's manual on how this thing works. I would wish everyone would go back every now and then and read the owner's manual, because that is going to be the greatest help that we can have. Richard, thanks so much for this amazing 
punchline and conversation and all your insights. It's again, I can't say this enough times, but it is truly an honor to be able to have you on the show. So thanks so much for joining me today. Well, Tiger, they were great questions and uh, it was a pleasure to be here. Well, this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. That was uh, Richard Spencer, who was the 76th Secretary of Navy. It was a wonderful conversation about military ethics, about competition with other military powers, the state of the Navy, investment in human capital, frontier military tech, the philosophy of war, and so on. Uh, we encourage you to follow uh, Secretary Spencer's work uh, and listen to more of our episodes on policypunchline.com. Follow us on YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, rate and review us. Thank you so much for listening today. And as always, uh, we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.